start, could you just introduce yourself, please? Yes. Um, I am Beverly Glenn Copeland. As far as one can say, I am anything that works. Thank you so much for coming. I'm very excited to hear about your journey, your story, and uh, I'm sure there are going to be some nuggets of wisdom imparted. So I'm, I'm hungrily awaiting those. Uh, <laughs> I try not to be too hungry because you know what? Sometimes there's nuggets, but not necessarily <laughs> wicked wisdom. <laughs> There'll be nuggets, I'm sure. <laughs> Some kind of nugget, yeah. Um, so I thought perhaps it would be best to start at the beginning. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your early life, your upbringing, and the role that music played. Played? Hmm, I like this. It's totally unexpected. Lovely. Well, my early life. So I was born in Philadelphia, and two folks who were quite extraordinary beings, like most people are, at least I thought so. And um, my father at the time was in the Navy, it was World War II. My mother was working three jobs while I was in utero, so I uh, came out screaming. <laughs> she was under a lot of stress, needless <laughs> yeah. to say, right? <laughs> right, working three jobs, yeah. Yeah, my parents uh, had both uh, had managed to get really good educations. And um, so from a very, I, I lived with my grandmother, with my mother until my father came out of the Navy. And then we all lived together with my grandmother in Philadelphia. Uh, my childhood was glorious. I remember it. Um, I lived in a neighborhood where everybody knew everybody. Um, and I was free to run up and down the streets at two, right? Because wow. everyone was auntie this or uncle that. And that's literally part of my extended family in terms of genetics, as well as people that were in um, the ways that we all used to live as humans, which is we all had extended families. And somebody, everybody knew everybody and took care of the children, right? So uh, I remember running up and down the streets and I could run into any house and I was safe and get cookies and whatever, right? And uh, if there wasn't something, uh, if there was anything that was uh, not safe on the streets, everybody would let me know ahead of time. And there never was except for one situation. Um, and everybody warned me, you know, stay away from that situation, right? And then I did. And everybody was on the lookout to make sure I did. So it was a wonderful childhood, uh, baby, babyhood. And then my parents bought their own home. And I lived in another community in Philadelphia where we were free to run up and down the streets of the neighborhood. And this time, <clears throat> folks were not all black. Some were Eastern Europeans and some were blacks. And when it, we all played together and, you know, we had literally, we had a, at the back of our homes was like a play yard because it faced onto the back of other homes. And so there was this huge area in the back where people would drive their cars in from the end of the street to park their in, in the garage under their homes, right? So we just had we just had this whole area plus playgrounds and we were just oh we had a blast. We made up every game in the in the county you could think of and ran up and down and yeah, I loved it. Meanwhile, my father, from the age when I was approximately, I guess, about three, when my father moved from my grandmother's home, <clears throat> he must have bought a piano. I, I wasn't really aware of that, but I, he started playing all the time. And my mother, 
decided that she would never see him because the the piano was in the basement. And so she decided that to get him out of the basement, she would go and buy him a Steinway Grand Piano, which she did and stuck mm. in the living room. <laughs> Very clever. Very clever woman. <laughs> right. And then from her perspective, she had dinner music for five hours a day. My father was a brilliant classical pianist. Um, and uh, he played, he came home from te- first teaching and then being a principal of a high school. And uh, he would play five hours a day. And he played. His love was the uh, Easter. It was uh, the European classical tradition. Um, so that was my cradle music, except for whatever I heard when I was before three. I don't remember that, but I remember from certainly from five on. I remember that's what I heard all the time. My mother played brilliantly as well. She could play anything. She didn't play the classical tradition, but I sat beside her a lot. She sang me songs, and we sang songs together, yeah. And, um, yeah, and then my family moved to an amazing environment when I was 12. 19 homes all facing in different directions that were built around the trees that were 300-year-old oaks and 150-year-old maples and in the middle of what everybody else thought was woods. This area had been found and turned into an integrated community, an intentionally integrated community in 1956. And our home, you know, there was uh, deer coming up on the lawns and it was exquisite. It was absolutely exquisite. So I had a very atypical childhood as a person of color for which I am deeply indebted to my parents for uh, being able to provide me with uh, a great deal of um, freedom and security and this music that then turned out to be the basis of my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when did you first start playing music? You started on piano, is that right? Uh, Well, according to my folks, I started singing whenever the radio was on when I was about six months but I don't remember that, right? <laughs> so <clears throat> I started playing the piano. I see. I think I started taking lessons at eight or nine. It was horrible. <laughs> Hated every second of it. Why? Well, okay. So you have a you have a masterful musician living in your house. Somebody who is you know ripping up and down the piano, playing brilliantly this classical tradition which you know I loved and then unfortunately we had the same teachers which is something you should never do (laughs) right so I would get in the room well the teachers I'd hear them you know my father would go in for his lesson we would go once a week the teacher would be fainting right (laughs) with joy and then I'd come in twinkity winkity plunk 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 And even though I was very musical, you know, I didn't practice because the bar was set too high. Mm. It was just way too high. And it was like, whoa, okay, that's, I can't compete with that, right? So, So I actually learned piano and I was actually quite good at it, but it was not something that I could stand to practice. And anyway, like, when was I going to get to practice? My father never got off the piano. <laughs> <laughs> 
beg your mum to get put another Steinway in the bedroom. <laughs> she could have, yeah, no, another Steinway there. No, there was only going to be one Steinway in our house, right? And it wouldn't have been any use to me, you know, Steinway with me going plinkety plink. Needless to say, I, uh, I loved the piano repertoire. I love it. To this day, I l- love it. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you, you, you came out singing, you were singing, you were singing at six months old to the radio. When did you um, begin to train and to kind mm. of take it, study, take it, mm. take it seriously as, mm-hmm. as your yes. form of musical yes. expression? I started when I was 15. Yeah. Which is, you really shouldn't start training a, a voice before then. But I was very fortunate. I had an incredible vocal coach. You want to hear a story? Yes, please. Okay. Are we not, have we not heard any already? No, no, you haven't heard anything <laughs> compared to this. Check this out. Okay. So I had a very dear friend, a young, a young black teenager uh, who was a very good friend of mine. Her name was Ann Hobson. And she and I went to the same high school. And the high school was a school that was sp- specifically designed for kids who were planning to go to u- university. But they also included being able to uh, major at, in high school in art or music, right? When this we're talking 1957, so this is really ahead of its time, right? So we went to this school and one day she says to me, and we were like in I think the 10th grade, she said, "Let's go join the orchestra." And so I said, "Oh, oh, okay, right?" So we two of us twinkity winky off to the orchestra and she got to the orchestra and the orchestra leader and you know said, "What would you like to play?" And she said, "Oh, well, I'd like to play the harp." Right, and well, that's not a problem. They pulled out a harp, you know, sent her home with a harp. Right, right. Wow. And she started playing the harp. And they said to me, "What, what would you like to play?" And I said, "Well, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it because I hadn't really." And they looked at my arms, which were very long, right? And they said, "How about the trombone?" <laughs> I went home. My mother said, "Over my dead body." <laughs> You were going, not going to play the trombone. Right? <laughs> it's like, you know, I mean, she didn't say it for my dead body, but it was obvious that I was not going to get to play the trombone with any kind of, or anything else. Like, So I went, I said, oh, okay. So I went off and I joined the uh, the choir. And the choir director got, you know, a load of my voice and she ended up finding, there was another young woman who had an extraordinary voice, who was an old, a, year, a year older than me, who had been studying with this particular person. So I got to study with this amazing woman. My friend turned into the first harpist of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, she was the first black woman to be in any orchestra, the first black person to be in any orchestra, and she was the first harpist for 30 years. She was utterly brilliant, and major composers ended up writing music for her, right? So it's like my friends were all musical and artistic and, you know, just by some reason. It was an artistic bunch that came in at the same time or something, whatever. But anyway, I think of that often. Mm. Yeah. So that so that kind of happy accident almost ending up in the choir. Yes. Um, you know, that was that must have been so formative for you. It was. And when did you, I guess, start to think about making your own music? And Not till I was twenty five. Yes. When I was twenty five, I think I I twenty five, maybe twenty six. Because I, for a while I was a, I was actually I performed classically. Mm-hmm. I was a classical singer, and um, it looked like my career was doing actually quite well, all, all things considered. Um, and then one day I had an understanding that I had already lived a life as a German leader singer. 
that I had lived in Germany another lifetime. And it was, that's why it was so natural to me. Mm. But then in this lifetime, I wanted to incorporate, I wanted to explore the music of my current background as well as classical music, as well as because when I was a um, in teenager, I was listening to music from all over the world. I was listening to African drumming. I was listening to stuff from India, from China. And I, I just, it was like, I just felt like, oh, of course you know how to write, you know how to sing this music. You already sung this music in another another time. But this is not this lifetime for you. This, and, I, and literally, that's what I suddenly realized one day. And I just dropped it like that. I went out, I sold my oboe that I had, which was my other instrument, and I bought a guitar. I started writing music. And what were some of the other, what were these, so you kind of broke free mm-hmm. from this classical yeah. Yeah. background and, and what you've touched on it, that sort of the music that you were discovering, but what other, what other sounds were you listening to? What other sounds were kind of building up this musical palette that would then inspire you to create your first two records? I wasn't listening to anything really because I'd listened to so much my whole life from that, from the time I started writing my own music, I basically lived in silence. I still do. Hmm. So it wasn't, it wasn't, you weren't getting your inspiration from other sounds that you were hearing on the radio. It was just kind of coming from within or without. From, from without to the within. Yeah. Mm. I mean, you know, as a teenager, I listened to everything, you know, I'm not just, I mean, I was listening to the latest R&B and whatever was, you know, it wasn't called R&B then, whatever it was called right in the fifties, you know, and I was dancing my little head off and, you know, doing the things that teenagers do, right. Listening to the music that teenagers would listen to, whatever it was. And you know, of course, I you know that was a part of what I was incorporating, and I was listening to jazz. I was, in, you know, I was listening to Frank Sinatra. I was listening to Mary Makiba. A little bit later on, I was, you know, I was listening to Odetta. You know, you name it, I was listening to it. Everything, everything. And um, and then after a while, it was just like I just wanted to. I just didn't hear, feel the need to hear anything. Not like I'd heard it all, but it's just, I just needed silence. Mm. So could you tell me a little bit about those first two records? There's Beverly Beverly Copeland and Beverly Glenn Copeland that came out in the same year. The same year. Yeah. Yeah. So those were actually the reissue of Beverly Glenn Copeland is the first um, piece of your music that I heard, the first record that I heard. Okay. And I I love folk music. um, And there aren't many black expressions of that kind of folk music uh-huh. and so that that to me was beautiful to find oh i'm so glad yeah good and and there's there, there's those early records are so you're very bare in them they're, yes they are very feeling yes and they're very melancholic oh, and very this melancholic. morning i was listening to nothing beautiful and it was it, it really touched me but it's 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 very sad yeah, well, most of the classical tradition, that song that was sung, uh, that was written in the last, very last part of the 18th century and the 19th century, is all, uh, it's, it's, it's all tragic, really, mm-hmm. except for a very few happy things, right? And maybe that, you know, in some ways that was part of, of my ex- uh, interior understanding of, of deep pathos and deep suffering, you know, because we, we all recognize it. I mean, we all have it, right? Even if our, even if we have 
wonderful upbringings. We have it in our genes. The sufferings of our ancestors are there, right? So, you know, in some ways, I think when I first started writing those, that music, it was still an extension of classical music for me. Mm. And so I was expressing such... When I listen to it now, it's like slit your throat. It's like, my God. <laughs> no, seriously. I don't know how anybody could listen and not jump off the bridge. Right? <laughs> seriously. It's like, I mean, I mean I, you know, I'm saying that uh, you know, in, a, in a funny, I'm just making a little bit of fun of it. But the truth of the matter is that there's deep pathos in those, mm. in those and deep feeling, um, which I think was, was a combination of what I was used to singing and my own, you know, sort of understanding of that aspect of my life, right? Because, uh, you know, you don't get through life without suffering. Mm. None of us do, right? So you express it. Right, And so I expressed it in those ways. And um, it's very interesting that you should talk about Nothing Beautiful because I just received a communication from someone who uh, is, quote, a fan, um, uh, just expressing his profound appreciation for that very same mm. piece, right? And then I had a long conversation because I, always talk, I always, always talk with anybody that writes me. And um, so, so we had a long, you know, kind of uh, exchange about um, the importance of that that piece and of the expression of of those things. And and because he said that, I had to reflect on it, mm. right? And and go, right. There's appropriateness for everything. And just because I moved on from that doesn't mean that it's not appropriate. Right, and that it's not going to touch some somebody in the ways in which obviously it must have touched me in those times. Right, so thank you for telling me that. Well, it's it's just the truth. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> but I appreciate you sharing it because mm. for me it uh, it opens up my prejudices and ma- it makes me stop having judgments about things from my you, own past. Do you find that you judge those early works? You oh, yes, I judge mm. them as as throat slitters. Mm. Right. I did, right? And, 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 and I mean, still, I think of them as like, oh, my God, there's such pain in there, right? But when I think about it, it's yeah, like I was in a lot of pain at various times in my life. And I just let that out. So it's appropriate. So thank you. Mm. You know, it's helping me to uh, stop judging. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I guess that must be so kind of fascinating for you with this kind of resurgence of interest in your work, that the, there are these new meanings and new layers yes. that are kind of being revealed to you that you wouldn't have even necessarily been conscious of, of course not. at the time. No, no. And part of that is because your generation is so much more conscious than we were in the first place. You, uh, you're more mature as, uh, as, a, as, a, as a species than we were. And... Uh, so you are reflecting on things that that my generation didn't reflect on until we were in mid forties, or maybe our fifties. Right? Mm. Mm. Well, perhaps we'll, we'll I'll talk a bit more, but I'll ask you a bit more about that in a moment. But I wanted to ask you about keyboard fantasies because mm-hmm. we're you know the the sonic palette, shall we say, of that record is very different to those early throat slitters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, how did that come about? And I'm interested in how this, this use of synthesizers, whether that kind of changed your process of making music. Um, just a little bit of the story of that of that mm-hmm. record. Yeah, well, I had always 
<clears throat> I've been, I was always interested in speculative science. And by that time in my life, I read mostly speculative science. What, what is speculative science? Speculative science is called science fiction. Ah, Right? Yes. The scholarly way to... to well, I call it speculative science because the people that I read who were science fiction writers were all major prize winners of... They were all major um, uh, physicists and uh, astrophysicists and cosmologists who were also fabulous storytellers. And they'd all won international awards for their f works in physics. So when they would tell a story, they'd weave a really interesting story around speculative fiction, mm. right? Speculative, um, well, speculative science, right? What they could anticipate might might be developing, or might be found, or might be discovered, or might how the what the, how the universe might work, or who might be in it, mm. you know, all of those things. And I just was so fascinated with that. And one of the things that they talked about in all those years was that life, as far as they knew at that point, was based, and I'm sure they don't feel this way now, but was based on two principles, carbon or silicon. <laughs> carbon, we're carbon-based. We started messing around with silicon, mm. right? We call them computers. But really, from my perspective, it's the beginning of silicon life. We are actually experimenting with creating life based on silicon, right? Well, so when the first computers came out that I could hold in my hand that didn't require this whole building, <laughs> right? right? I was just, I was in awe, right? I was holding in my hand the beginning of a new life form that was intelligent, right? I couldn't do a thing with it, right? Because I, I wasn't a uh, programmer. But I literally, I mean, I, it, I literally walked around with it in my hand. I bought one that was a little bit bigger than the size of my palm. It actually came from England. And uh, I walked around with it for weeks trying to get it to do anything because I knew it could do something. Eventually, they came out with a computer, computers that could, in fact, allow a musician to have a whole palette in about three years, it didn't take long, to have a whole palette of, so of sounds, which when hooked up to a special kind of a keyboard, you could, you, could, um, you could access. And the sounds were sounds that orchestras couldn't make. No, but, you know, they were sounds that, were, that we were creating or that this, these silicon-based machines were creating. And... And I mean, I say this in this in this documentary with Posey, but and, and but it's so true. It could also come if you really, if you really, as I call it, squinted with your ears, sound like a violin, right? <laughs> Back then, yeah. Back then, right? <laughs> so, it, so it 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 provided me with an orchestral palette, which I was I was used to any anyway, right? And uh, plus. Any and every kind of instrument that was not in an orchestra, plus things that no, no, you know, organic instrument could possibly come up with. And I was in heaven. Mm. So I just sat around for years playing with this thing. I slept very little, <laughs> you know, literally. I slept very little. I, you know, 
did a lot of removal, snow removal and feeding family. And, uh, and other than that, I, I did nothing but sit in my studio and, and just explore this. And mm-hmm. so Keeper Fantasies was, came through from wherever that this comes through at a time when I had those instruments in my hand. Right. And you were you kind of in in solitude when you were making this? I read that you were sort of living in the middle of a forest in a cabin when you made this record. Well, I, it wasn't quite a cabin. Uh, my partner and I had bought a home. But yes, it was a great deal of solitude. Uh, we were surrounded by uh, bears and cougars and um, deer and other wild beings, you know, four-footed beings. Bears used to stretch themselves out on the rock just behind the house. One day I was out running down a trail and I discovered I was running up on a cougar. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that, right? Mm. And survived the, survived to, to talk about it. Um, yeah, it's incredible. I loved it. And it was lake country as well. So right across the, the, the road was this huge, deep lake, right? Which, you know, I spent as much time on and in as I could. Yeah, it was, it was my idea of heaven on earth. Yeah. It's quite an interesting kind of scene, this like incredibly natural scene on the outside. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of in your lab <laughs> yes, reading speculative, <laughs> speculative fiction and creating these, you know, electronic sci-fi soundscapes. Yes, 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 I know. It's a, it's a great, it's the wonder of us. You know, that we can hold very divergent paths. We can walk them at the same time. Mm. You know, with one leg is going this way and the other leg is going the other way. <laughs> Whatever that is, yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit about inspiration and perhaps where you get your inspiration from and what inspiration means to you. Because I think that's maybe what interested me about this, this setting um, when you were creating those sounds and whether the natural world is a source of inspiration for you. If it's not that you're necessarily listening to other music, um, where, does that, where does that come from for you when you are kind of thinking about creating? Or perhaps you're not thinking about creating. No, I don't actually think about creating at all. I mean, I, sometimes I go into my studio and I just noodle around or I practice something or the other, you know, really. But mostly what happens is that, is that I suddenly, suddenly something comes through the ethers and I run into my studio and I start putting it down and it, you know, and it comes very quickly. And usually, usually it comes with, music comes first with some inklings of words, of lyrics. And then I, I listen and I, li- you know, once I put the music down really quickly, and I listen and I listen and I listen and I listen. And I try to understand what the music's trying to tell me. And then, uh, you know, something suddenly goes clickety-click around lyrics. But basically, I, I really experience it as, as um, I mean, I say this over and over, but I can't say it enough. Um, I experience myself as a finely tuned radio. And I'm tuned to certain frequencies, and in, and so you know my job is to keep the radio finely tuned, and then um, 
I'm in a certain space or when the universe decides that there's something it wants to send through, it sends it through on my wavelength. That's, you know, it's sending things through to everyone at all times, but it um, everybody has a different wavelength that they're tuned to for different, you know, for whatever it is in life that they're supposed to do. So, you know, we'll send something through on my wavelength and, and, and I go, whoa, and I rush and put it down. And then after I've put it down, I literally cannot, I really don't feel that my actual abilities are up to what it is that I received, right? Because then sometimes I can barely play it back once I've put it down, mm. right? I have to learn it. But, once, but because I studied, I know how to put it down. But then after it's all done, it's like I'm it's like I'm I'm a stranger looking at it. It's like where did that come from, right? Mm. And interestingly enough, you know, most of my friends are visual artists, and they're my age, maybe a tiny bit younger in some instances, but all of them are amazing, amazing visual artists, and they all say the same thing. They say. Oh, no, I didn't paint this. <laughs> this was given to me, mm. right? Like one day I picked up the brush and the brush went... <laughs> or, in case of one of my friends, like she's an incredible stained glass artist, one of the finest I've ever seen in my entire life, and I'm really into stained glass. She creates it three-dimensionally as well with a color palette that's outrageous. And um, she just says, oh, well, this just came to me. Right? It was like, you know, suddenly this drawing and this whole thing came and, you know. Mm. And then her job is just to finesse it. This, there's quite a lot of people, there's quite a lot of musicians who would not have that uh, view. Though, you know, the, yeah, of course. I did it, I made it, mm-hmm. I, and this is mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. I mean, I really don't know if there's any difference between the I and the it. Mm. <laughs> I think this might be a nugget. (laughs) Might be. (laughs) Uh, Mm. That's just how I express it, right? But, you know, I mean, whatever, Mm. you know. It's it's a mystery. It is a mystery. It's the great mystery, yeah. Yeah. So did you continue releasing music after Keyboard Fantasies? Yeah, I actually released another album uh, in between Keeper Fantasies and the and the one that you were talking about, the self, um, and it was called At Last, right? Mm. It was a it was an EP, but it has four songs on it. Um, and then Keeper Fantasies, and then after that, I released uh, one that is currently being played uh, called Primal Prayer. Yes. yes, there's quite a big gap between. There was quite a big gap between um, Keeper Fantasies and the next, because Keeper Fantasies was released in 1980, I think. Uh, six. Six, six yeah, six, yeah, that's right, thank you. <laughs> and um, Primal Prayer came out around, I uh, started writing it around 2002, 2001. It was finished by 2003 or so, it took me about two years for all those songs to come through, and uh, it was put out in 2004. So there was a big gap there. But that's not to say I wasn't writing. I mean, I've never not been writing, you know, in that way. So it's just that it wasn't any opportunity to put anything out. That opportunity came then, so I just did that then. When I was sort of doing a bit more research about your, your kind of life and your story, 
I thought I thought of Julius Eastman because mm-hmm. um, I, I made a radio program about him last year and that there are some parallels, African-American artist studying classical music, um, perhaps not fitting into some of the boxes that were available to be slotted into at the time. And in a way who is forgotten as a result of that to a certain extent. Um, Because I think it's easier to remember people who fit into our stories of of what and how and where people should be. And artists who are on a a different quest to actually be completely true to themselves and, and sometimes at the expense of fame celebrity and being recognized they they can kind of slip 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 into the cracks shall we say is that something that you are kind of conscious of happening do you think it's something about not conforming perhaps that makes it harder for people to know where to put you as an artist oh well, definitely i mean they just know what to do with me i mean look, listen to that you know the album that you've been listening to there's everything on there from 20th century opera or 20th century art song or whatever to blues. Well, what in the heck do you do with that? <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what shelf exactly do you put that on? <laughs> chop it up into little pieces. And <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know I, I never held it against anybody. I knew that it was from Mars, relatively speaking, right? I always had had hope that maybe somebody could see it, and and people did, but then they couldn't they couldn't translate it into into getting out uh, uh, it out easily to an audience because at the time everything was slotted according to its rhythm and blues, its jazz, its white jazz, its black jazz, its you know country, its you know don't be a black country singer. There's only one, Charlie Parker. Is it Charlie Parker? Yeah, no, Charlie. What's his name? There's one black country singer that ever made it in mm. the country before maybe, there may be a few now. And he was amazing. And he grew up with that music and he just like went, well, this is my music. I just claim it. This is me. This is me. And he just did it. He was amazing and he was loved and accepted, but that's very rare, mm. right? So it's like, so, you know, things were, were, were very boxed in according to your, your background, your race, your, what, what, what aspect of your racial background, your musical racial background you were, you were exploring or whatever. And I just, you know, it's like, you know, I just didn't fit. So that's okay. Then it's, I guess it's that, I think it's that uniqueness of your sound that is calling out to people today. And it was the same thing that happened to Eastman. There's sort of like, it takes, it might, it might have taken 20, 30, 40, however many years, mm-hmm. but this, the, the sound is out there and people hear it. Well, now, and why? <clears throat> if you start and think about it, it's really easy to explain that. Your generation is a world, your world citizens, basically. You listen to music from all over the world, right? You've have because of silicon, you've had access to 
the rest of the world. You have friends in different countries. You go to visit people and, you know, oh, my friend and my friend and, you know, and I listen to that and go, what? You're going to visit who? Where? <laughs> you know, my friend was down the street, you know. <laughs> Your friend is, you know, a thousand miles away in another country. And, you you know, you if, if you have the, the means, you, you hop on planes and go and visit them for a period of time or whatever, right? You, you're living in an entirely different world. And... And it's a world of your making as well and how you feel about things. So your ears are huge and, and what you listen to is dynamic. It's everything from all the way over here to all the way to the other side and, and all the way down back through history, all the way to the latest thing that's happening in the next 15 minutes. You've access to it all. So of course... You know, the music that was coming through me, which was coming from all those different cultures, you know, you listen to that and it, it makes perfect sense to you. It's no big deal, right? So how did that, how did the, the, these reissues, these re-releases re come about? Well, there was a Japanese gentleman who had a, an interesting store in Japan where he sold hard-to-find um music that had been released and i've actually i actually was very fortunate that cbc canadian broadcasting corporation took me to japan to meet him mm. because they were making a documentary about my life as well and um they took me to meet him just a glorious being this being anyway at the very end of 1915 he got in touch with me out of the blue an email and said you know that he had found my um, work. I think a friend of his had given, had found it and given it to him and that he wondered if I had any copies and if I would let him sell them in Japan. He wanted to introduce, you know, so I sent him a bunch of copies because I had lots, needless to say, and um, he sold them in for three days. You know, he sold 30 copies in three days. And then he asked me for some more and eventually he took everything I had and sold them. What I didn't know was that he had an international presence and that people watched and listened to everything he said online. He was a very humble person, right? Mm -hmm. It didn't take long. Within a few months, I had all kinds of offers of record deals from around the world. You never know. <laughs> right? You never know. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting to me because my the sect of Buddhism that I practiced have practiced... I'm starting out, starting now, and then my 48th year of practice, right? That is is uh, from Japan, right? Mm. <laughs> uh -huh. I looked at that and I went, uh huh. See that? Mm, no Cosmic connection. symmetry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. So from Japan comes, you know, a little thank you or something. Who knows what? Mm. Yeah, a little a little connection, huge connection actually. I'd been to Japan several times but had never had anything to do with music, right? Yeah. And then suddenly this Japanese gentleman gets in touch with me. And I thought, oh my goodness, look at that. Yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, I suppose, I, I, I find the word spiritual a bit difficult. Yeah, that's fine. Um, your work is described as new age mm -hmm. by some. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was look, looking at some of the song titles um, from the Primal Prayer release which heaven in your heart this side of grace between the veils you know there are lots of spiritual allusions and 
also just listening to your music, I hear there's a quality which is incredibly deep and expansive. And so I was just wondering, is that something that is consciously transmitted in your work? Or, I mean, are you, are you conscious of trying to spread a kind of a, merit, a, a spiritual message in your work? Um, how much does it inform your, your music, the music that you make? Totally informed by my Buddhist practice. But the Buddhist practice is actually, the root of it says that each individual has a, their basic nature is an enlightened nature. And you can call enlightenment anything you want to call it. You can call it that of God. You can call it whatever. It's, that's not important. The point is that it is, a, it is a, a nature that is totally compassionate, totally wise, and totally courageous, Right? That just about covers it, <laughs> you know, from my perspective. And and I I I know that this reality exists in all cultures because there's a single source. We're in it, right? And 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 it is expressed in accordance to how a particular culture can hear it, right? And some people have called it religion and all of this and that. And, and religion is a very different thing from, from, from spirit, right? Uh, religion is codified. Spirit is, has no codifications, right? It comes straight from the awe of what it is this universe is and our, our awe of it. And then our, our sense that we are actually a participating part of it, Right? So in that particular, in primal prayer, I was attempting to honor all, all, the, all of the roots of the ultimate tree, of our understanding that we are truly, our basic nature is, is, is truly compassionate and truly wise and truly courageous. And that gets all covered over by the pains of life, by... by what people in a certain culture, and every culture has its own little numbers to tell us that it, where we're less than, mm-hmm. right, or whatever. But when you, when you can divest yourself of that, then I find that the greatest beings—they're all—they're all just the greatest beings, <laughs> and they've come from every culture to teach, right. And um, the teachings are, you know, slightly different, but in the, at the core, they're quite amazing. And personally, you know, I'm a Sokogakai Buddhist, and that fit me because there were no rules, no regulations, and I was not about to have anybody tell me how to how to dress, what to eat, or what to, what who to love, right? And this particular sect, which was born back in the 13th century. And which, when Japan went to war, the leaders of this sect were thought criminals because they did not, because they realized, no, 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 where Japan has gone, this is not, this is not Buddhist teachings. This is not in accordance with Buddhist teachings, right? So they were imprisoned. One of them died in prison, starved to death, right? So I, I see this sect as having been true to the message, for since the message first got in, you know, 
and explored back in the tw- 13th century Japan. It's everywhere in the world. There's like there's uh, 17, 18 million of us, and uh, we're in every country in the world. I think 200 countries. There are people who who have the same practice in Russia, all throughout Africa. You know, everywhere. It r- rings for me. But we will not all ever be of the same faith, nor should we be. It's not. <laughs> it's not. It's just not. It's. We didn't come here to all be the same. Okay? We're all glorious beings in our variety and our differences. We, that's what we have to offer each other. Mm. You know. So in that particular album, I was trying to honor all of those. You know. Um, there's one that's. It's devoted uh, entirely to Rumi, who's Persian mystic, Sufi, right? Coming out of the, that tradition and uh, whatever. And then, then there's those things that are not, not, not where people don't have, have any specific thing that they call it. But they're no less compassionate, no less, no less wa- capable of being compassionate, wiser, and... And, and courageous, and it well, doesn't have anything to do with whether they practice something or not, mm. right? It's something that they've connected to something that's very profound. It just doesn't have a name, right? What, what to you is the connection between music and spirit and this kind of energy entity that, that, you, that you're speaking of? Well, it, this is my connection to it, but, I mean, it doesn't matter what you do in this world every person in the on this in every person that's born into this life is creative and has something creative to offer it's just that we're used to thinking of creative as being specifically the arts but that's not so you know the arts have a very wonderful way of being able to reach us because they're through our eyes or through our ears or with our bodies you know, or or they take us on on journeys as we read. You know, or maybe they take us on a journey when we eat it. <laughs> <laughs> I know that one. <laughs> yeah, I know that one too. Yes, indeed. I just came from one of those. <laughs> um, you know, so we. But you know, those are specific art forms that are we think of as art forms. But one of the one of the horrible. Hor- I want to call it horrible. But one of the very difficult things is that we don't see that no matter what anyone is doing, whatever they're offering, when it's coming from their truest self, it is creative and it is needed. It is part of the beauty of of the creation, right? So music is just one way of that. And the wonderful thing about music is that it doesn't have to have words. I mean, like, you know, if I sit in front of a Van Gogh, I don't have to have be from any culture, you know. I'm just sitting there and I'm just I'm just going, oh my God, look at this, <laughs> you know. Or if I listen to um, Beethoven's seventh, Bach's Pasakalian Fugue in C minor, or something that uh, Miles Davis, his Kind of Blue album, or you name it, where there's no words at all, right? And it's like anybody can journey with that. Mine's more limited because it has words. The only good thing about it is that currently I'm speaking the long franc of the world, which happens to be English. It soon will be Mandarin or something else, right? 
who knows what it'll be. But right now, the world is speaking English as the, you know, you know the, the one that's easiest for everybody to learn or what it's not easy to learn. It's a horrible language really, but you know, <laughs> it makes no sense because it's actually a language composed of about five, six other main major languages, but you know, so it doesn't make any sense really. <laughs> when you speak it. <laughs> it's like, whoa, this, you know, poor anybody trying to learn this. Um, but you know, so, so I'm able to be a lyricist and, and have a, a lot of people be able to relate to it, but really music without lyrics is more relatable than anything. And I think it's probably... I heard a, a female physicist say that the universe was actually a sound. Mm. That was one of the most beautiful things I ever heard. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess for us, we, can, we, we have ears to hear certain frequencies. And, you know, maybe there's this... I mean, it's like we can't even hear the frequencies that whales say, sing in and speak in, right? We can't hear them. but a small portion of their frequencies. So, yeah. You know, mm. it makes sense. I heard. I heard recently there are lots of like scientists sort of doing strange things, like recording the frequencies of ice caps melting and mm-hmm. of trees, and mm-hmm. then you know mm-hmm. converting them into mm-hmm. sounds that we can hear. Mm-hmm. And every, everything mm-hmm. is singing. Everything is emitting Every- these yes. waves yes. that can be converted into sound, and that's quite a nice. Yes. It actually ties in with your idea of you know being this instrument radio that's picking up on all of these signals, hearing the songs of the world and then putting them back out there. Oh, I'd love to think that's happening. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you some links. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I mean, I feel like we've covered a lot, but perhaps you touched on it already um, and maybe it's not practical. Maybe it could be a bit of a nugget of philosophy, but for young artists, young musicians out there who might hear this and you know wanting to wanting to find their truth wanting to tune their radios wanting to yeah find the best way to express themselves musically um what what advice could you give what 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 little nugget would you like to leave people with well i actually actually said this at at a a conference for um, well actually a musical gathering under the red bull Whatever music uh, academy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. It was one of their gatherings, mm. and and I, and I think it's still. You know, it's, I said this a couple of years ago, and I think about it, and I think it still holds true. That um, if you are if you are in the quote unquote creative arts of any kind, to learn everything you can, listen to, watch, see, experience as much as you can. And then listen to your heart and know bit by bit, let your, let your heart tell you what you are meant to offer. And if what you're meant to offer is what's currently being offered, fabulous, go for it. If it's not, continue to follow the path because at some point, it will be relevant. And it will be what people need to hear. You may not live to see it. Van Gogh did not live to understand. He sold one painting in his lifetime and um, died under tragic circumstances. And now you know. I, I, I have this joke. I, I, 
one one time I heard that you know somebody had bought one of his paintings. And this was back in the sixties, for I don't know sixteen million dollars or something. And I hope that it was him coming back in his in another lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> Cutting that check. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I have the money to buy my own paintings. Yes. <laughs> I can look at them for all I want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, go for it. Just go for it. it, it first of all, if you, if, you, if you do that, you'll have no regrets as long as you really believe in yourself. And, um, you know, Hang out with people that believe in you. Figure out how to, uh, how to come to love life with all of its pain and all of its wonderful, glorious pleasures and uh, obstacles and open gates, you know. Do whatever you can that'll allow you to love your life, right? And there's sometimes that you're going to have to fight to love your life because there are going to be people around you who are not going to want you to love your life. Sometimes they're going to try to repress you in all kinds of ways, including physically. But have faith that uh, you came for a purpose. And ultimately that will, your life will shine. Well, you know, when you were talking about Van Gogh not being able to witness, experience this appreciation and recognition, and you've been lucky to experience that in your life. And yes, I wonder what's what's next. How do you carry that forward? Well, because I've, 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 I'm lucky to experience appreciation, but it's really not about that for me. It's about, I really believe that the reason that it's being appreciated is because it's talking about what's needed now, mm -hmm. right? So really what I'm supposed to do is to talk about what's needed now until I die and something else will be needed then and other people will be talking about that and that's fine. That's how it goes. That's how it's supposed to go. Yeah. We have a, a period of time that we're born for a reason. I hope to fulfill that reason. And uh, that's that. Next. <laughs> Next life. Ooh, Next what life. are you going to be? Ooh, I don't know. Ooh, Ooh. Okay, so you've done, you've done. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I used to you've say. You've done the synthesizers. <laughs> so what's it going to be? It's going to be holographic yeah. space music. Actually, you know, I used to say uh, that I wanted to be a pilot on an intercontinental, uh, not intercontinental, inter intergalactic ship. Or maybe, you know, I'll be a tree next lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> Struggling deal on Earth going, good grief, they didn't leave me anything. <laughs> Who knows? Now that we know that trees talk to each other, every, all, all life is, aware, is awake and aware. So, you know. Anything's possible. Anything's possible, yeah. Mm. Mm. Thank you so much. It has truly been an inspirational conversation. It was just a joy to speak with you. Thank and, you. Uh, Yes, good luck with whatever is next. Thank you very much. Thanks.